You're listening to the Gospel of Mark, a series preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. I was reminded, even as I walked up here, what a privilege it is to be able to come to a church like this and open up the Word of God and discuss it with you tonight. It really is a privilege for me. Pastor made a brief comment this morning, and I thought it was very powerful when I, when I thought about it for a little while. He said, if we obey the Word of God this week, then by next Sunday, we can be a different person than the one we've been for the last 30 years. I thought, that's interesting, isn't it? You can be the same person for 30 years, but when you start to apply the Word of God to your life and allow the Spirit to work through you, He changes you. And hopefully that's not the case for you. Hopefully you've been doing that in the past 30 years. And hopefully that for you, it's he's going to change you from one degree of glory to the next. That's what the Christian life is supposed to be. And so before the service, I I said something to Jacob, like, hey, tonight may be the night that God changes your life. He's like, yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) I was like, no, really. I mean, we're going to be in the Bible. and The Bible has the power to do that, right? So you never know, right, Jacob? You never know. It's been over a month since we've last opened up the book of Mark. It's a a study of an amazing gospel, and I've missed being able to be in this book. My favorite thing to do as a preacher is to walk through a book of the Bible and to unearth the treasures that God has hidden for us in them. It's just such a privilege. And I like teaching. I like doing Sunday school. I like doing devotions. I like those things. But I think anyone that's ever done it would agree. It's just it's so wonderful to be able to walk through the Bible, and just be like, what does God's word say? Let's, let's start there, let's end there, that's all we need. And so, without further ado, let's jump back into our story tonight. Uh, Mark's gospel begins by conspicuously bypassing the birth, the genealogies, and the childhood of Christ. He doesn't concern himself with any of the nativity story, he doesn't concern himself with the manger, or the angels, or any of those things, because he doesn't care about children or Christmas pageants. <laughs> Or it's not relevant for what he's trying to do. As he introduces Jesus, he gives us what he needs us to know about him. And so he begins his story, not at the nativity, he begins his story with the messenger. And the job of John the Baptist is to be the one that will uh, be the forerunner, the, the announcer of the Messiah that's coming. So John the Baptist takes the promises of the Old Testament and shouts to the world around him, just so you know he's here. Just so you know, the king has come. The Messiah that we've been waiting for, he's here. And, and Mark doesn't need to do all those other things because he's, he's tied this whole story together by using John the Baptist as the messenger. John is out in the wilderness, dressed in strange camel's clothing, eating wild, wild honey and locusts. I was going to say wild locusts and honey, but they're probably both. They're probably both wild, right? <laughs> And the whole thing is wild, really. It's, the, it's a crazy spectacle. And people come to see it, and I wonder if they came because they're like, what's going on? This guy's dressed in camel's hair and he's using weird stuff. But when they came, they were hammered by the power and the urgency of John's message. Right? He was urgently calling them to repent of their self-righteousness, to repent of their religious hypocrisy. These Jews have been so set in their ways, and they needed to be sh- shaken up a little bit to realize that, that their goodness wasn't enough to save them, that they ha- had sin, and that needed to be dealt with, and so they needed to repent. And John calls them to that. 
John saw himself as a lowly, humble servant. His desire was that Christ would increase and that he would decrease. And this prayer begins to be answered in our text today. And so while John is out there in the desert preaching, who shows up? Jesus. Jesus shows up. And he goes, and he goes into the dirty, filthy Jordan River to be baptized. And in doing so, he identifies himself with us. Right? We, human beings, mankind, were going into that water with the symbol of, of washing away their sin. And now Jesus walks into that filthy water and he says, I'm identifying myself with you. I'm taking a baptism that I don't deserve, but I'm taking it because of you. Be one with you. And here we find the voice from heaven calling out, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And immediately after these events, Jesus is rushed further into the desert and tempted by Satan. And and Mark really covers this temptation in just one quick sentence. And then, in verse 14, he begins another part of the story. And if we didn't know better, we might assume that the events in verse 14 happen immediately after the events of verse 13. But the truth is, there's actually a fairly large gap in time, probably six to seven months between verse 13 and verse 14. Between that time, we can pick up John's gospel, and we can find out that we, we hear more about John the Baptist continuing ministry that we find about Jesus' selection of his first disciples. This is important to understand that John had already covered the first time Peter and Andrew met Jesus, because later we're going to see Jesus meeting them again. And so we need to know some of John's story to fill in these gaps. We find that um, he performs his first miracle at the wedding of Cana and Galilee, that he heads to Judea for his first trip to the temple and, and for the Passover feast, and there he cleanses the temple for the first time. That there, in the evening one night, he meets with Nicodemus. He tells him how to be saved, that he must be born again. We find that John's imprisonment is mentioned, which Mark mentions just very briefly at the start of verse 14. And then he heads back to Galilee, but he decides to go through Samaria. And so it's there he meets with the Samaritan woman. And so all of these events have transpired between verse 13 and 14 of the Gospel of Mark. And so we need to understand that that Jesus' ministry is not just at his very beginning now, that he's been ministering for six to seven months, he's performed some miracles, he's been teaching kind of around Judea and around Galilee, and now he's headed back toward Galilee. He's already met some of his disciples, they've already seen some of his miracles, and so it's important to get a grasp on what's happening before we get into verse 14. Okay, So we will see in verse 14 and 15 Jesus' message. We'll see in verses... 16 to 20, his mission, and then in verses 21 to 22, his majesty. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee. Well, in verse 13, he was already in Galilee. So he had left Galilee, gone to Judea. Now he was coming back to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, you and believe the gospel. So here we have Mark's summary statement of Jesus' preaching ministry. Can you imagine what it would have been like to sit under Jesus' preaching? Can you, can you fathom that? When they're teaching you to preach, right? You read books on preaching, you find out that, that really there's three important parts of preaching. There's the logos, 
So that's the words you use. The ethos, that's kind of like your character and how you conduct yourself in general. And there's the pathos, which is your passion, right? And you need to have all of those things working together in order to deliver a great message. Except we're all broken people, right? And so there's no such thing as a perfect preacher. There's no preacher that says perfect words all the time. There's no preacher who always can have the perfect ethos because we're all broken and sinful. And our passion isn't sometimes what it ought to be. And here you have Jesus, the Word made flesh. Everything he says is perfect. He's not even wasting words. Like, there's, there's no stupid stories, right? There's no, nothing said to get a quick laugh because he just wanted to be funny for a bit. He's just always giving exactly what everybody needs, and it's perfect. And he does it with the perfect ethos, right? He is the perfect man. Everything he says, he means. There's no questioning his character. There's no wondering if he really, you know, meant to say that. And his pathos, his, his passion is pure. I can't imagine what it would have been to hear the Son of God who loves the world like this try and deliver the message of salvation. What an amazing thing. And so that's what he, that's what he's doing. He's, he's around preaching. And what is the message? He's got three points to his message. So he's a good Baptist preacher too. That's helpful to know. The message is this, the time is fulfilled. In the New Living Translation, it's, it's translated, the time promised by God has come at last. I think that's kind of helpful to think. The time is fulfilled. The thing we've been waiting for is here. This statement means a lot more to them than it does to us. We read it and we think, what time? I wasn't, I wasn't really waiting for anything, but get to know it's time. And, and they're going, the time? Do you mean... Do you mean that time? Do you mean when, when Adam and Eve sinned and God promised to send someone who would crush the head of the snake, that that person is here? Do you mean that the promises to Abraham are, are beginning to be fulfilled? Do you mean that the, all the prophecies of the Old Testament are, are coming to fruition? Do you mean the time that every Jew in the world knows about and is just longing for is here? That's what Jesus is saying. I'm here. The time is fulfilled. God's promises are taking place. Time is fulfilled. And then he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And this phrase, the kingdom of God, again, for us, might seem a little strange, right? What does it, what does it mean the kingdom of God is at hand, or, or the kingdom of God is near, or that it's, it's, it's basically here? Well, we think of kingdom always as a location and like ownership. So a king has a kingdom, and they have certain borders that they're in charge of, and that's their kingdom. And, and in that kingdom, they're able to rule. But most of the time, and Mark uses the, word king, the phrase kingdom of God 14 times, most of the time the New Testament uses kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. It's speaking about just the rule or reign of God. Not at any specific location. Most of the time, the, if you want to call it a location, it's the hearts and lives of believers of his children, of his people. And so when he's talking about the kingdom is here, he's saying that the rule and the reign of God is here. He's coming. It's at hand. He's going to be ruling and reigning in and through his people in a matter of time. And the great thing about the Bible, if you you follow the kingdom of God, is, I mean, it's, it's throughout the Old Testament that it's growing. It's growing in its rule and reign in his people, in the church, and eventually we see the, the kingdom of God throughout the whole earth. And so it's a 
preview of what will happen in the world someday in the future. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then he says, therefore, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus' message is the same message that the church is commanded to, to preach today. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel of Christ. This is his invitation. And it's twofold, right? Recognize that you're a sinner. See that you have broken God's law. You can't repent if you don't think you're a sinner, right? It's a silly command. Somebody thinks they're perfect. Repent of what? And so repenting, I think, is not only just seeing that you're a sinner, but realizing that that, that matters, right? That your sin is against a holy God that, that God, that Christ, he's the judge of the universe, that someday you stand before him, and someday you spend eternity in one of two places. And, and so repentance is taking your sin seriously. You're a sinner, and it's a bad deal for you. Okay? There's consequences to your sin. And so repent. It's the most loving thing you can say to people. And you know what? Most people, they, they don't like to hear it. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, the most loving thing that, that I or anyone else could say to you is repent. See that you're a sinner. And see that without turning to Christ, if you stay in your sin, you will pay for eternity for it in hell. And so repent. Turn away from your sin. And put your faith, believe in Christ. Believe the gospel, the good news that Jesus died in your place, that he came to take away your sin, that he is the one that crushes the head of the serpent. He is the one that has victory over sin and death and the grave. And he's the one, because he died and rose again in your place, that you can die and rise again and spend eternity with him forever. This is the gospel. This is a good deal. And so Jesus' message, same as ours, repent, believe the gospel. Jesus is inviting the broken and wounded sinners that he is meeting to repent of their sins and trust the good news that the Savior has come. That invitation is open to you today. That's Jesus' message. Now let's look at his mission in verse 16. It says, Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come you after me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, we know the song, right? I will make you fisher. You know, you know the song. But can you imagine that actually happening? Like, follow after me, and I will make you fishers of men. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. Can you imagine him going to a farm and be like, hey, I will make you a farmer of men? It would seem strange, right? And this is the way that Jesus calls them. And I think it would have made a lot more sense to them than it would to us. Because what he's saying is, your past life is over. So put down your nets. You don't need them anymore. Put down your fishing gear. Put down everything you know about your current job, your current career. And turn toward me, and I will give you something new to do for the rest of your life. Now, we can make a lot of comparisons between fishing and knowing the currents and knowing the type of fish and knowing the right lure. I don't think those are all the things he was going for there, honestly. I think what he's saying is, you were doing this, and I have something new for you. And it's a glorious thing. Now, sometimes we'll preach this, and, and it's really actually fun to preach, that like, do you understand that like Jesus was meeting Peter and Andrew, and, and they saw him for the first time, and he said, follow after me, and they just went and followed 
And if you know Jesus and you know all of what the Bible says about him and you won't follow him, how can you not follow him when they just didn't even know him and they followed him? Except the problem is they did know him. When they saw Jesus at the shore, they knew exactly who he was. Do you know why? Because they'd been following him in the past. Right? They'd already seen. They'd been at the miracle of Canaan and Galilee. They, they've seen him teach and preach. He spent time with them. What seems like happened is that he spent a lot of time with them while they were in Galilee. And then Jesus decided he was going to Judea. And maybe they spent a little bit of time with him there. But then they decided to go back to their fishing. And Jesus was still doing his thing. He was still going around preaching. And so somehow they were separated. Somehow these men decided to go back to their old careers. And Jesus sees them again and he says, Fellas, that's not what you're meant to do now. Come with me and I will make you fishers of men. And their response is perfect. Immediate. Verse 18, And straightway they forsook their nets and they followed him. Immediately, they left everything that they knew, everything that they owned. They left their future. They left their security. They left their business, the one that they would run when their parents pass on. They left it all, and they followed him. It's not an easy thing when somebody calls you to leave everything you know. It's not an easy thing, especially, I think, in our society, to leave financial security. We prize security almost above anything else. Knowing what our future holds is pretty important to us. When someone comes to us and says, I want you to give your future to me, that's a really hard thing to give up. But that is what Jesus tells us to do. And I'm not just talking about this call here to these disciples. I really mean, I think every person is commanded, called, to give up their lives for Christ. That doesn't mean that he's going to take you immediately out of your career. It doesn't mean that he's going to flip your life upside down and send you to Africa. He might. He might not. He probably won't. But it means that you recognize that the, very, the rest of your life and everything you have and all of your gifts, that they're all now surrendered to Christ for him to do whatever he wills with. So that's the command. Take up your nets and follow me. And they follow. And they're not the only ones. Verse 19. When he had gone a little further from hence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship, mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. James and John literally walk away from the nets that they're halfway through repairing. Uh, (laughs) I get in trouble from Tara often enough because when I start a job, I hate to leave it unfinished. Like like 4 a.m., I'm I'm still going to finish it if it takes all night, right? I don't want to leave. And sometimes she'll be working with me, and she feels like that means I'm expecting her to stay up till 4 a.m., and complete the job. I hate leaving things unfinished. These guys are sitting there. They're working on their nets, right? They've got maybe half the net done. And he says, put the net down. You don't need it. Come follow me. I wonder what his dad thought, their dad thought. Your dad, like, he's in the boat, and he's watching his boys, like, fix these nets. All of a sudden, they're, like, dropping the net and walking away. Like, 
Hey, James and John, what's going on? Where are you going? Oh, we're going to go follow Jesus. Okay, when are you going to be back? Like, you're going to leave me here with the servants? Like, you're going to leave the business? You're going to leave everything that I've built for you? Really? No way you're going to leave all that just to follow Jesus. Yeah, we are, Dad. We're going. Now, I'm thinking that this made more sense to Zebedee than, than we might think. I guess that James and John had spent that time already with Jesus, and now Zebedee sees Jesus, and he hears the call, and he thinks, all right, this is it. They've made their choice. They've been talking about him already. They've told us all about this Jesus. Now they're actually finally committing to him. They're finally going. They're finally following. And so I think maybe it made more sense, but it doesn't really matter. I just think it's just amazing that they're in the middle of fixing nets, and they say, yeah, I'll go. I'll go wherever you call me to right away. I'll drop everything. And just, I mean, a side note, he had hired servants. Like, they had a good business. They were, they were wealthy fishermen. And he's saying, I'll give that up. So the question is, why? Why would they leave? Why would they give all that up for Jesus? And, and Mark is going to be answering that question for the rest of his gospel. But verse 21 and 22 give us a, a little glimpse into it. In verse 21, he says, And they went to Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into synagogue, and he taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority, and not as the scribes. So Capernaum is a small town on the upper northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. About, probably about 15,000 people there. And it's about two miles from where the Jordan River flowed into the lake. And here Jesus is preaching on Saturday at the local synagogue. And I, I don't know how he got asked to do that. I don't know how that worked out. Jesus didn't have any official rabbinical training. But obviously his uh, uh, reputation preceded him. And the person who was in charge of the synagogue said, Jesus, yeah, sure, you can come, you can speak. And as he speaks, the people are astonished. They're amazed. They're shocked by what they're hearing. What is the difference between the way that Jesus spoke and the way that, that all the rest of the synagogue leaders spoke? It's not his eloquence, though I think Jesus was very eloquent. It wasn't his charisma. It was his authority. It was when he spoke, he spoke with the authority of the God of heaven. He spoke in a way that nobody has ever or will ever speak again. He spoke in a way that only the God of heaven can speak. What does preaching like that sound like? The truth is we're doing our best up here to convey to you what the Bible says. But if, if we could just like read the Bible and be done, you would hear a perfect message. And Jesus got to like just take the Bible and be like, this is what this means, and this is what this is, and this is how it applies to your life. And, and as he did that, everything was perfect, every single time. And so they were absolutely astonished. Every other teacher in the entire world must rely on the wisdom and the teachings of others. Jesus is the sovereign king of the universe He is the word made flesh, and all authority belongs to him. And so as we 
read this story and we think about what his message was and what his mission was, and then his majesty as the king with all that authority. Um, We find that Mark's gospel, like all of the gospels, is written with an end in view. He's not just a historian giving information or a biographer. He is writing to persuade. His goal for the rest of the book is summarized in these series of events, that he's beginning with the preaching of Christ. This is the message. He's showing the mission of Christ and how he's calling people to follow him. And then he helps us understand the authority of Christ, the majesty of Christ. And so let's look tonight at his message, the call to repent and believe. And you notice that the call is preceded with this uh, ushering in of the kingdom of God. This fulfillment of all of what the Old Testament had been alluding to, had been speaking forward toward. In Luke chapter 4, there's another great story of Jesus being in a synagogue. And I think this story is just really, really neat because it gives more detail. Mark is not a detail person, right? He, he is just giving us the facts. But here Luke provides a story for us that's, that's very similar. In Luke chapter 4, verse 15, it says, And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. So, Isaiah is talking all about the Messiah that would come, all of the things that he would accomplish. And then in verse 20, he closed the book, he gave it again to the minister, and he sat down. And <laughs> what are you sitting down for? You just started. Like, you got something else to say, right? And so the eyes of all of them in the synagogue were fastened on him. And so he gets everybody's attention by sitting there. And then they hand him a mic and say, give us the rest of the answer. And he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled In your ears. And then he dropped the mic. (laughs) This day, everything the Old Testament was promising is fulfilled. And so the time is fulfilled. The promise is, is, it's happening. Today is the day I'm here. And so, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus done so many awesome things. And he did so many awesome things. He healed people. He gave them sight back. He raised the dead. He calmed the storms. He fed thousands. But the central point of everything he was doing was this message. And all of those other things were speaking to the authority that he had and the authority he had to preach this message. He could have healed everybody if you wanted to. That wasn't the goal, right? The goal is this. And so if you don't know this message, tonight, repent and believe the gospel. That is his invitation to you. And everything led up to that. That is his message, repent and believe. His mission was to call to discipleship. Um, I find I worry more about how people are going to interpret the call to discipleship than Jesus did. So as I stand up here and I think about delivering the call to lay down everything you have 
and take up your cross and follow Jesus, I feel like I want to soften that blow a little bit, right? I say, hey, just so you know, he loves you so much, right? He loves you so much that he died for you. And since the Father loves you like that, he's not going to ruin your life. He wants joy for your life. He, he wants fullness of joy, in fact. Um, he's given you a promise of purpose in your life and of power in your life that, that there's going to be provision for his servants. He give you all the information why you're going to be okay with Jesus. You know what? None of, none of that's not true, right? It's all true. But Jesus doesn't go and, and like barter with the disciples. He's not going there with Peter and John and be like, hey guys, you make this much here, I can do better, Right? He goes there and he says, come, put down your nets, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Do you know how much you're going to pay for that? Nothing. Son of man hath not where to lay his head. I don't have a bed. I don't have a place to stay in. We're going to be sleeping in crazy places sometimes. Traveling around. Sometimes there won't be any food. Sometimes we'll be staying up late by these annoying crowds. Like, like life is going to be really hard. So put down your nets and follow me. That is the call to discipleship. Here they set an example of the immediacy and the complete obedience that they demonstrate. Why is it that we can hear that same call and think that we have the luxury of giving him just a little bit at the time? Why is it sometimes we come come to church and we're like, you know what, that is one area that I should probably hand over to him. Like, like he, okay, fine, I, I've been finally convinced that maybe I should stop doing this little thing. Why is it that we don't all feel the need to just give it all? Like, everything I have is yours. I am your disciple. I'm taking my cross and following you. And my life is now about serving Christ, period. Why is it that we soften this blow and we, we take it, you know, now, I know that God works this way, right? He's worked step at a time, and, and he's working our life through lots of little things. And, but I find it interesting that we get comfortable with, with just a little bit, right? Um, fearless warriors in a picket fence. How much can, can I give you, Lord? How close can I get, Lord, to my surrender without losing all control? And that's kind of where we sit. I want to give you everything and, except for this, except for the control I have here because this makes me feel good. This gives me security. This is what I know. This is what I love. And we are fearless warriors in a picket fence. And so the disciples had security. They had good, lucrative careers. They were probably well-known guys in their community, and they gave it all up. And, and do you know what they faced in giving it all up? They faced ostracism by the same people that ended up hating Jesus. I mean, they were hiding because they knew him. They were ashamed of him. So, so they faced that. It wasn't easy, but they did it. And do you realize what happened when Christ came and changed their world? Instead of Galilee and the little lake that they spent all their days on, the world was open to them. They traveled the world preaching the message of, of Christ. Instead of thinking only about how to catch more fish, they became theologians. Psychologists, strategists for the gospel. Their lives changed, and it wasn't a bad thing. They had a purpose now, a greater purpose. And so, when Christ comes and he calls you to discipleship, just just go. Just say yes. 
complete and immediate obedience. And finally, we see in this text the authority of Christ. In our world, we have so many opposing authorities, thousands of conflicting truths competing for our attention. That's really what the world is. You should do this. You should believe this. You should, you should act this way or live this way or wear these shoes or wear this dress or, or act, you know, do this thing and you will be joyful. You will have peace. You will have contentment. You will have purpose, right? Everybody's trying to sell you that. And even Christians often, we get caught up in stupid stuff because we just, I don't know, we're, we're missing it. And so we're trying to fill that void with things that don't matter. And here comes Christ with all authority, who says, there's joy in my presence, fullness of joy. There is peace, peace between me and you, peace between man. There, there's peace offered. There's, there's all the things that, that you think you want, the world can't give you. Grace, forgiveness, mercy, all authority is given to Christ. And instead of listening to the voices around us, we should listen to his word. Because he speaks as one having authority. The most freeing thing about ministry is knowing that that the Bible is what we need. That it has the answers. The most freeing thing about dealing with people who are struggling is knowing that you give them biblical counsel and you've done what you can do. The most freeing thing for you as you go out into your workplace or your school or or wherever you go is to know that you have the authority of Scripture behind what you're doing. Just do and say what the Bible tells you to, and you're okay. You don't have to worry so much. You don't have to, to stress out about it. You don't have to, to think that you need to be some awesome, perfect whatever. You just need to do what the Bible says. Jesus taught it was with authority because he is the authority. He is the author of all truth. He is the judge of the world. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, we've been speaking in our missions class about the Great Commission. How Jesus commanded us to go into all nations and preach the gospel, to, to, to preach and, and to baptize and to make disciples of all nations, right? So we're supposed to go. The promise is that he'll go with us. But in verse 18, right before that, it says, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. And when it says power, it's the same word for authority. And so what he's saying here is, Everything that you need, all the power of heaven is given to me, and so I'm giving you this commission. I'm sending you out to go. And so we can see the message of Christ to repent and believe. We can see the call of Christ to be disciples and the authority of Christ, and then we can just surrender and do what he calls us to do. That's what we're here for. That's what our church is about. And so I would challenge you tonight to think of your life and really get back to basics. Have you surrendered this way? Is your life about following Christ? Have you recognized his authority? Have you repented? Believe the gospel? Are you following him with everything you have? And if you are, praise the Lord. Keep it up. And if you're not, why not make a decision too? Why put it off? So many times I think we put these decisions off. You know what? Satan wants you to put it off. He always wants us to put it off. If the authority of heaven and earth is calling you to do something, let's do it. Let's pray.